Thanks. How am I doing, Todd? We didn't get a chance to check this beforehand. Uh, it's good? Yep. Um, that was my fault. Running around a lot of different fires going on, good fires. The youth have moved up to uh, upstairs today. It's a dream to have our own space, and so uh, we're excited about that. Heather and Patrick are up there with them this morning. Uh, speaking of youth, uh, I just want to say thanks again to the band and uh, especially to Emily. I don't know if you guys know, right? But Emily, who was leading this morning, she's 15. Uh, and so uh, she's got a great talent and gift. Um, but I'd like to say, um, more importantly, she has a great heart towards God. And uh, as your family's pastor, I, I feel like I'm an ambassador of sorts to bring to you guys just to remind you that there's church going on uh, outside of this room on Sunday mornings and on Wednesday nights and during events and activities. And that uh, we need to be mindful that uh, not only is um, our children and our teens the church of the future, but they're also the church of the present. And so uh, we need to see them with that and, and, and encourage and fan their gifts and uh, their talents and uh, not to forsake them because they're young. Well, as Jeff said, we are continuing with our um, walk through um, Brian McLaren's book, which is serving as a guideline for uh, our journey through the scriptures. And uh, this week we want to talk about... Uh, what it means to dream and what does it take to realize a dream and what does it mean if you feel like your dream has come and gone? How do you revive that and how do you obtain that? But before we jump into the heart of that, I, I'd, I'd like you to put on your imagination caps. And uh, you've probably heard this parable before if uh, you've been around me any length of time. But uh, I want to read you something just to get the uh, wheels greased and moving, so to speak, because today's message might be a challenge for all of us. It's definitely a challenge for me. So um, let's just do that, okay? And this is from uh, a book called The Fidelity of Betrayal, uh, actually by a friend of mine. His name is Pete Rollins. He's a philosopher, theologian, movie maker. All kinds of stuff. He's a, he's a cool dude. Um, but he really does well with writing parables. It's a lost art, but he, he's trying to revive it. So this is called The Caretaker's Trial. There was once a small town filled with believers who sought to act always in obedience to the voice of God. When faced with difficult situations, the leaders of this community would often be found deep in prayer, or searching the scriptures for guidance and wisdom. Late one evening in the middle of winter, a young man from the neighboring center and city arrived at the gates of the town's little church seeking refuge. The caretaker immediately let him in, and seeing that he was hungry and cold, provided a meal and some warm clothes. After he had eaten, the young man explained how he had fled the city because the authorities had labeled him a political dissident. It turned out that the man had been critical of both 
the government and the church in his work as a journalist. The caretaker brought the young man back to his home and allowed him to stay until a plan had been worked out concerning what to do next. When the priest was informed about what had happened, he called the leaders of the town together in order to work out what ought to be done. And after an intense discussion, it was agreed that the man should be handed over to the authorities in order to face up to the charges that had been leveled against him. But the caretaker protested, saying, This man has committed no crimes. He has merely criticized what he believes to be the injustices perpetrated by the authorities in the name of God. What you say may be true, replied the priest. But his presence put the whole of the town in danger. What if the authorities found out where he is and learned that we protected him? But the caretaker refused to hand him over to the priest, saying, He's my guest. And while he is under my roof, I will ensure that no harm comes to him. If you take him from me by force, then I will publicly attest to having helped him and suffer the same injustice as my guest. Well, the caretaker was loved by the people. And the priest had no intention of letting something happen to him. So the leaders went away again. And this time they searched the scriptures for an answer. For they knew that the caretaker was a man of deep faith. After a whole night of pouring over the scriptures, the leaders came back to the caretaker saying, We've read the sacred book all through the night, seeking guidance, and found that it tells us that we must respect the authorities of this land and witness to the truth of faith through submission to them. (laughs) But the caretaker also knew the sacred words of Scripture, and he told them that the Bible also asked that we care for those who suffer and are persecuted. There and then, the leaders began to pray fervently. They beseeched God to speak to them, not as a still, small voice in their conscience, but rather in the way that he had spoken to Abraham and Moses. They begged that God would communicate directly to them and the caretaker so that the issue could finally be resolved. Sure enough, the sky began to darken. And God descended from heaven saying, the priest and elders speak the truth, my friend. In order to protect the town, this man must be handed over to the authorities. The caretaker, a man of deep faith, looked up to heaven and replied, If you want me to remain faithful to you, my God, then I can do nothing but refuse your advice. For you have already demanded that I look after this man. You've written that I must protect him at all costs. Your word of love has been spelled out by the lines of this man's face. Your text is found in the texture of his flesh. And so, my God, I defy you precisely so as to remain faithful to you. 
with that, God smiled and quietly withdrew, confident that the matter had finally been settled. Join me in prayer. Dearest God, we desire to be faithful to you and you alone. We want to know you as intimately as is possible. And yet we know that your thoughts are not our thoughts and your ways are not our ways. We know that your word has instructed us not to lean on our own understanding, but to trust in you and acknowledge you in all that we do. So in that end, to that end, we ask the following. May we never accept and be content with unanalyzed assumptions, assumptions about the work, assumptions about the people, assumptions about the church, or even assumptions about you. May we never be afraid to ask questions of the scriptures, of traditions, of the work we have inherited or the work we are doing, or even of you. For we know that there is no question that should not be asked or that is outlawed. For we know that the day we are completely satisfied with what we've been doing, the day we have found the perfect, unchangeable system of work, the perfect answer, never in need of being corrected again on that day, we will know that we are wrong, that we have made the greatest mistake of all, For in that day, we will have mistaken ourselves for you. Amen. So be it. So again, today I want to talk about a dream. Not an ordinary dream, mind you. For today, I want to speak to you about a dream of God's. I know speaking for God is a risky proposition. It can trend towards an overly anthropomorphic understanding causing us to see God as the big dude in the sky. But I'm willing to risk it because I feel so confident of this message. I'm confident because I see it in the scriptures. I see it in our religious traditions and our religious heritage. I've seen it play out in my own life and the lives of almost everyone I've ever known. You see, the dream I'm talking about, this dream of God's is one of shalom. For God's creation. God wants and dreams for this world to be one of peace, wholeness, and harmony. Listen to what Cornelius Plantiga, he's a favorite philosopher of mine, wrote about shalom and his work, not the way it's supposed to be, a brevity of sin. He says this, the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation, and justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. Because in the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. 
a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way it ought to be. And this is God's dream for this world. And yet we, humanity, have turned this dream into a nightmare so very often. Through our greed and pride, our covetousness, our mimetic mechanism, scapegoating, anger, wrath, violence, indifference, and vices, we have sinned and shattered the peace and harmony and shalom that God intends for us our fellow creatures, and our surroundings. We read this in the creation account, how the man and woman broke relational boundaries and in doing so embraced shame instead of acceptance and estranged themselves from an ever-present and ever-loving God. This failure to acknowledge and to live into their belovedness led to a devolution of shalom that boggles our hearts and minds. Adam and Eve begets Cain and Abel, who begets Lamech, who begets the destruction of the world through a flood, which begets the Tower of Babel. All are examples of a humanity running amok and trashing God's dream of shalom. It's into this backdrop, into this context, into this world that enters heroes of the faith, pioneers of the reclamation of God's dream. Enter Abraham and Sarah. We read about them in Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. See, Abraham and Sarah, originally Abram and Sarah, and then they would have their change name. I always felt like Sarah got a little short change. She just got an H added on at the end. At least Abram got a ham. I just came up with that. <laughs> wow. Um, but as is often, God sees us in one way and sees something in us and calls us into greatness to attempt great for great things for God and 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 then to expect great things from God and and this is what Abram and Sarah Abraham and Sarah would become they they were called to leave their family and their religion and they left them behind and then they were called to walk a certain way and as a result that they would issue in a nation that would be the showcase nation for the world to see this is what it looks like to live with God In this verse, chapter 12 and and, and verse 2, God says to Abraham, 
I'm going to bless you, but it's not going to stop with you. I'm blessing you so that you can be a blessing. In other words, I see in you, Abraham and Sarah, the seed of how to reclaim my dream project of Shalom. I see in you someone who's willing to step out by faith and to challenge yourselves and to challenge others so that this restoration of peace and wholeness and harmony can be reinstituted. I see in you this promise. Now, Don in the booth can attest to you that I have given her all the scriptures to read. And if we just read the scriptures today, we'd be here an additional 15 or 20 minutes. So I'm going to give you some verses and quotations, and I'm going to summarize the story for you. I don't want you to take my word for it, though. Please jot them down, write it down, go home and read over it again so you can make sure I'm, 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 I'm not giving you some kind of crazy stuff. We just simply don't have time to read all of those passages today. But I want to just give you backdrop and I want to give you some context and we'll hit some of this. Abraham and Sarah were told that one of the ways they would be a blessing is that their descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the grains of sand on the beach. And yet, fast forward, fast forward, fast forward, they're old And they haven't had children yet. Or at least Abraham and Sarah have not had children yet. And it's at this point way down the road in chapter 18 of Genesis. That the Lord appears to them by the oaks of Mamre. And Abraham's sitting at the tent in the heat of the day. He lifts up his eye and it says that behold three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw him he ran and he. He, he bowed out to them. Hospitality is a huge deal in this piece. And something's different about these men. And this is the representation of God by the author here. He let's us in on that. He says, don't pass by. Come into my tent. He runs over to Sarah. He says, Sarah, please, please get some food ready. Let's do this. We've got to, we've got to be hospitable to these people. I sense something. I feel something. Something's in the air. And so he took some, some whey and some curds. He took some milk. He took a calf that had prepared. He, he, he set it down before him. And then he stood by them under a tree while they ate. And they said to him in verse 9, Where is Sarah your wife? And he says, She's in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening to the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, <laughs> saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why does Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Now you're sitting here today, and you have had dreams. Maybe it was at Emily's age or younger, or maybe it's now that that you feel like God has something for you in this world. There's some meaning, there's some purpose, and you haven't felt them realized. Those dreams have become deferred or they've become challenged, or maybe they were there for a moment and then just were trashed, dashed against the rocks of life. The question for you today, the question for me today, the question for us today 
is this. Is anything too hard for the Lord? See, God's got a dream. He wants to live through you and live through me. God's got a dream that he wants to live through the grove. And God, just like that, had a dream for Abraham and Sarah. Sarah, when confronted with the very presence of the Lord, laughs. I'm worn out. It's too late. Heat flashes have kicked in. I'm not just talking desert. And you, you cats want to tell me that this is going to happen now? We're not even going to get into the story about Hagar and Ishmael. I tried to make that thing happen on my own. That wasn't good. God says to them in that moment and God says to us today, is anything too hard for the Lord? Sarah was like, just like when God calls us. Sarah denied saying, I didn't laugh. (laughs) But they said, but you did. Then the men set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation. And all the nations of earth shall be blessed in him. For I'm chosen him that he may command his children and household after him. To keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. So the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Let me just say this again. God has a dream for you. God has a dream for me. God has a dream for us. What do we do when we feel like the dream is deferred? Or the dream is done? How do we tell ourselves? How do we remind ourselves? How do we see and know and feel and by faith understand that there's nothing too hard for the Lord to do? Because you see, Abraham's dream can only be met with a son. Fast forward, Abraham is given that son. That son is named Isaac. And that son is going to go on to do some incredible things. But if we fast forward through the story, when Isaac is a youth, God comes to Abraham. Whatever that's like. I don't know what that was like. Was it a smoke and a fog? Was it a burning light? Was it three men again? Was it an interior voice or an outward? I don't know. But it says God spoke to Abraham and said, I need you to sacrifice Isaac. Come again? What? He's the promise. He's what I waited for. He was the dream and the dream's here. And now you want me to what? For you see, in that time, in that context, almost all religions viewed God as a powerful deity and ruler. 
that demanded sacrifice, that demanded not only sacrifice, but blood sacrifice. God is wanting Abraham to realize that what he's being called to do is something radically different. See, the first challenge was Abram, now Abraham, come out from among the Ur of the Chaldeans. Come out from among your family in that religious system. I have something different for you. In that context, you sacrificed your children to appease the God because the God needed blood sacrifice. And now Abraham, after being told, I got something different from you, and after coming out from that and saying, okay, I'm yours, and after enduring time and time when the dream was dashed and deferred and then finally realizing it, says, you want to do what now? And the story goes that Abraham said, man, I thought I'd left this behind. I thought this was different. If you want me to sacrifice my son now, I'll sacrifice my son. So most of you, not all of you, but some of you know the story. He goes up the mountain with Isaac. Isaac's like, what are we doing? Dad, pops. Abraham says, we're going to worship God. So they go up. He puts them on the altar. And uh, gets ready to plunge a knife into his chest. And uh, God says, stop. There's a ram in the thicket. I don't, I don't need you to sacrifice Isaac. Sacrifice this ram instead. And in that moment, we attribute the faith of Abraham to being willing to do the unconscionable. And because of that, his seed moves forward and we, we get to the nation of Israel and eventually to the person of Jesus. But I'm going too far ahead. So let me just say this. Sometimes, in order to obtain the promise, to obtain the dream, we have to kill the promise. We have to kill the dream. For you see, really hard for us to read ourselves into that context and say that's barbaric but again this was his context and we're even really jacked up about sacrificing animals we don't have to do that anymore either but i need you to understand that the jewish people understand this story of abraham and isaac as the gift of the jewish people in that this is a religious shift of cosmic uh Consequences, the fact that we don't sacrifice human blood, we've moved to animal blood. Now, we know that's going to be done away with Jesus. And again, I'm, I'm getting ahead, but I need to get you there. Is that Abraham was a man of his time. And he was fully contextualized in his time. And he had to be faced with what that really meant. 
Is there really a different way now than we've all known before? And am I willing to once and decidedly and finally settle that and move away from that so that I can obtain this? If you and I are going to realize God's dream for this world today, if we're going to find peace and shalom, and restore the harmony and wholeness that God dreams of. There's religious contexts and understandings that we not only have to question, we not only have to wrestle with, but that we have to kill in order for us to move into what God is doing today. Before you think Matt's lost it, which we can all kind of agree that I have in so many ways, especially Nicole. Let me give you Bible. How do we obtain that dream? We've got to be able to question, wrestle, and kill. So look at this story. This is, this is in Genesis 18, and I'm going to fly through these. And please, if you have any questions, this is the time for us not to push away, but this is us... Uh, an opportunity for us to lean into community. I need you to clarify this. I need you to say that different. What, what's going on? Don't walk away from this mishearing me. Okay? Agree. Uh, feel free to disagree with me, but, but, but make sure you wade in. Okay? And we're going to get to that. But as soon as Abraham is giving that promise that Sarah is going to have Isaac a year later, uh, the Lord says, as I just read a little bit of it to you, uh, should we hide it from Abraham since he's going to be the guy who makes this thing happen and inaugurates all this? Or should we go ahead and tell him what we're going to do? And that thing was, I'm getting ready to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. It's just a jacked up place. It's the most inhospitable place that there is. And so I'm going to get rid of it. I'm going to bring fire down on it. And should I let Abraham know or not? And again, there's a lot of interpretations of that passage and what that whole Sodom and Gomorrah thing means. Chances are great. It doesn't mean what we, many of us were brought up to mean. But, but God's or judgment is coming on it. And so at this point, it says that the men turned and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. And he said, after they told him, hey, are you going to sweep away this whole place? Are you, are, are you going to sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And he gets into this bartering thing, which is, in this context, very cultural. But he gets into this bartering thing with God. He's questioning God here. We've been told, don't question God. But the father of our faith, Father Abraham, is questioning God here. He says, hey, wait, 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 wait. Will you sweep away the place and not spare it for 50 righteous who are in it? Hey, don't do that. Put the righteous to death with the wicked? No, don't do that. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? He says, and, and God says to Abraham, if I find it, Sodom, 50 righteous in the city, I'll spare the whole place for your sake. And Abraham's just getting warmed up. All right, I got this. Got my, got my foot in the door here. And he says, whoa, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. And who am I but dust and ashes? But suppose... Five of the 50 are lacking. Will you destroy it for lack of five? God says, oh, I see what's happening here. 
I'll not destroy it if I find 45. And he goes on and on for the sake of 40, 20, oh, all and on. And so anyway, it comes down to the point where God says, if I'll find this many, okay. He couldn't find that many. But he let Abraham know. And Abraham is skin in the game because his nephew Lot lived there. And so he went and got Lot. And he did that thing. But this is the point I want you to see. And it happens over and over and over again in the scripture. But here in the founder of our faith, Father Abraham, it says that God credited it to him. That he questioned God. See, God gave us questioning minds. I don't think God minds if we use them to question Some of you have so many questions and you've been told not to ask them. You haven't been told that here. But let me let me let you know if your faith is going to be real, if you're ever going to get to the point where God can use you and your dream can be realized to bring harmony and wholeness, you've got to be able to question. I've said this so many times before, but when you sit on a date, how do you get to know someone? You don't sit and just read off a profile. That's e-harmony and that's kind of weird. But even if you get matched and you have that kind of peace, I, and no, no, no disrespect if that's how you met, fell in love and got married. Um, I'm thinking Patrick and Julie right now. But even after that fact, you meet so you can do what? You can ask questions. Because questions bring intimacy. Questions bring truth. If your kid's not asking questions of you, why is the sky blue? What is this, mom and daddy? Why about this? Then, then you might need to check on them a little bit because that's what we do. And yet somewhere along the way, we've been told, don't question God. And I'm saying to you, have to. I got to fly here real quick. The second thing is that God not only wants us to question God, but God wants us to wrestle with God. Fast forward to the descendant of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob is this guy who's this crazy scoundrel and a trickster, and he lives this weird life, and he finally gets to a point where he's been tricked, but he wants to make things right, and he wants to get good with God. He's already met with God, and we've talked about that before, and he's had a conditional relationship with God. He says, if you'll do this and this and this and this for me, then I'll call you my God. But now he comes into a moment in a time of despair. He's about to see his brother who hates his guts, he thinks, and is going to kill him, and he sent all of his people away, and he's at this river called Jabbok, and he's sitting there, and it says, in the middle of the night, the Lord came to him and wrestled with him. And Jacob was wrestling with God. God came and Jacob grabbed hold of him. And he says, I'm not going to let go of you until I receive my blessing. And in the middle of all of that, the angel of the Lord, God blesses him and changes his name from Jacob to what? Israel, which means one who has wrestled with man and with God and overcome. Maybe we should live up to our heritage and our name. 
and be people who don't just question, but who at times wrestle. Now listen, it's hard to wrestle with a concept. It's hard to wrestle with the immaterial and the ephemeral. It's hard to wrestle or it's hard to hug God. It's hard to hold God in those ways. So what do we do? You and I and one another as community who bear the image of God in us, we hold to one another and we wrestle with one another. Stuff's happening in our life. Our dream's deferred. It seems to be dashed. It's not there. We come in and we grab hold of one another and we say, why? Help me understand. Help me stay true. Help me be faithful. I don't want to leave. I'm going to hold on until I get my blessing. Now, here's the point. Jacob, now Israel, got his blessing, got a new name, also got his hip forever dislocated. When you wrestle with God, you bear the marks of that. But again, remember, we all bear the marks of life. Let our scars, let our wounds, let our hurts, let them be testimonies to God's blessing and promise and the dream that's to come. Let that be what we bear in our lives. So God wants us to wrestle. Not only does God want us to wrestle, but sometimes wrestling's not enough. Sometimes we've got to put it down. We've got to one, two, three, you're out. What do I mean by that? Gosh, I'm flying through this. Fast forward. Jesus is now our sacrifice. We don't need any more blood sacrifices to be right with God. This is Jeff talked about the other day. Our shame has been absolved and absorbed. And we are now living in our belovedness because Jesus marked the way. And Jesus took the shame and took the wrath, not of God, but of us, humanity, on his self. And as a result, we have a, a God, a, a slain but risen lamb to emulate and to imitate. So now Jesus has been born, lived, died, been resurrected, appeared to the disciples, gone up and sent the Comforter, sent the Holy Spirit to minister and to call out those, the ecclesia, the church, those of us who would bear that name. And at this point in time, we're reminded of Abraham and Sarah. I'm going to bless you so you can be a blessing to all nations. Because God's dream was never just that the Jews would be healed and whole and shalom, but that all of creation would be healed and whole. Acts 10. Peter's up on a roof. He's hungry. It's that three o'clock emerald diamond kind of thing. He's hungry and God sends him visions It's a vision of unclean animals. And he says, here, take and eat. Peter says, I can't. I'm a Jew. You know this. You set the rules. The number one rule, outward sign to the world that we're your people is that we eat kosher. We don't eat these things. And he says, eat it. He says, no. Vision happens. Second time while he's up on the roof. Again, he says, can't do it. I'm a good Jew boy. I'm a good Jewish man. I'm holding true to my, my kosher piece. That's me, son of Israel, father Abraham. No. The vision comes a third time. He says, no, but he's perplexed. It's at that point in time that representatives sent by a guy named Cornelius the day before show up and they say, 
or here. God says to Peter, go downstairs, go with whoever's there. I need you to do this. I got a dream. I need you to help the dream along. Because the point is this, Cornelius is a Gentile who has somehow found the true living God. And wants to know God in a powerful way. And so Peter goes and he shows up with them. And he says, God's here. And he says, the Spirit fell on them. And they were baptized in the Spirit. Peter's like, what is happening? Even the Gentiles are receiving you. You understand what's happening here? If the gospel is going to spread from Israel to everyone, the Gentiles included, practically, you can't keep kosher law with Gentiles. The table fellowship would never have happened. And the gospel would have been hindered. God says to be faithful to what the original dream was, you have to kill the dream of kosher. It's not to say kosher is bad. It's not good to eat. It's actually very good to eat that way. I'm just saying to you, for it to spread, it had to happen. Fast forward five more chapters. I'm landing this plane if the band wants to come on up. This has happened. The Gentiles are receiving this. Peter and Paul are both understanding this. And so there's a council that's called. Now remember, when we're talking councils here now, the church is really small still. So that all the leaders get together. James, the brother of Jesus, who's kind of the leader of the church at this point. Paul and Peter and all these folks are there. And they said the Gentiles have been coming on. What are we, what are we going to do with this? And people are like, well, if they're going to be a Jew, if they're going to be a follower of Jesus, we're all Jews. They've got to maintain that. So if the first thing outward kind of to the world sign was that you were God's chosen people was eating kosher. The second and even the most important was that as a male, you would be circumcised. When circumcision was ordered, it was said, this is you a covenant with you and all of your generations to come. But they meet together and it's decided out of that meeting. Not to be circumcised anymore. They say some things. Hey, let's make sure there's nothing involved with idols. No, no eating meat with blood. No, uh, no, uh, no sexual immorality. All these pieces. But this is what I want to get to. This man. This is so much. I've put in such a little time. I'm sorry. Even those things that they walk out of that council meeting with change. If you follow the arc of scripture, that story that's ever unfolding, that, 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 that arc being the moral arc that Dr. King talked about. Paul later in his epistles says to the church, he says, hey, you and I both know that there is no such thing as other gods. So don't be a stumbling block to your brother or sister. But if you get a good deal on some food that's been sacrificed to an idol, you and I both know that that's, that's, that's not real. That's null and void. Go ahead. 
even from that movement, there's this shift. It's the Jerusalem Protocol, as Walter Wink calls it, where to be faithful, as McLaren also says, to our tradition and to the original dream, sometimes we have to break where we're at with it so that we can get further down and realize it. God has a dream for you. God has a dream for me. God has a dream for us. It may seem like it's deferred. It may seem like it's dashed. It may seem like it's distant. What will it take for you and I to realize that there is nothing too hard for God and that the dream is still alive? You and I have to be confident enough in our trust relationally with God, ourselves, and one another that we can question, that we can wrestle and that at times we're going to have to put to death the concepts of God that we've had before in order to walk in the fullness of who God is today. It's not about God changing. It's about our understanding of God changing. So they're going to sing this song and I'd ask you to stand and sing with them if you know it. But, but as you sing, uh, the prayer is our heart Lord we thank you we thank you that you are good to us that your hand is not too short we thank you that you dream impossible dreams through fallible people that each and every person in this room is your dream Lord help us to understand what it means to have that faith. For help, helping us to understand that with faith it's not too late. It's not too late for the dream to come true. And it's not too late to learn something new. So today, as we follow in the footsteps of Abraham and Sarah walking this road together. We're still learning and rethinking and growing and discovering all that we can see you more clearly, all so that we can realize the dream that you put in us, both individually and corporately. In spite of long delays and many disappointments, teach us, challenge us, inspire us, invite us to dare to keep dreaming impossible dreams. In spite of the assumptions that everyone around us holds to be true, give us the courage to dare to ask new questions and make new discoveries, including lessons and truths about you and what you really desire. God, it may seem if it's too late to keep hoping, to keep trying, to keep learning, to keep growing. But we're alive in this story. And that means that we dare to believe it's not too late. Lord, I pray that you realize your dreams in each of us today. And I pray that you realize the dreams that you have set for the grove. God, we pray a special prayer for the child workers who have been kept long with children. May their nap be especially sweet today in your name. Amen. Love one another. Dream. Dream big.